Afternoon, pal. Ah, it's a lovely day, isn't it? Never fails to inspire. The, the, the view. My father used to bring me here when I was a boy. I would catch crabs in the rock pools. Sometimes I caught so many, my bucket couldn't hold them all. I remember being truly happy in this place. I wanted to see it one last time. Why are you sort of moving away, pal? Yeah. Well, uh, I hope it's somewhere nice. Can I ask you something? Yeah, yeah, sure. Why do you appreciate this? Why? Well, why? What purpose is there to you, to me, to all this? I don't know. It depends on your perspective, really, doesn't it? Perspective? Oh, oh sorry, mate. Uh, sorry, mate. He's got a mind of his own. Uh, do you want to walk? <laughs> we talked about purpose, faith, and whether or not this fleeting life is all there is, and I have never forgotten this conversation. Oh, personally, I think it depends what you believe. You know, if you believe that this life and the world that we live in is just a cosmic accident, and there's nothing to follow when you die, then... No. Can't see how there can be any meaningful purpose for anything at all, then. Come on, boy. If you believe that there's something more to come, you know, that our actions extend beyond this life to serve, like, a higher purpose. You know, something more eternal. Well, I think that changes everything, eh? Don't you think? The simplicity and depth of this young man's words planted a seed that grew and ultimately ended up transforming my entire outlook on my life. His certainty of God affected me deeply. He's a lovely dog. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's a little gem. A little bit scruffy, but... <laughs> hey, boy. Hey, Joe. <laughs> good to see you, my friend. Good. Oh, good, good to see you. Looking well. Yeah. well. Smell good, too. <laughs> what are you reading this week, anyway? Whoa. Klaus Telemann. The Road to Success. Reading, actually. Oh. It's an autobiography. Road to Success. Well, When standing on a coastal path, about to leap off and end my immensely privileged life. Have you heard of him, yeah? A young man walking his dog stopped and spoke with me. His certainty of God affected me deeply. I owe this young man a great debt, and because of the work it inspired me to embark upon since, many others do also.
Oh, it's just so good to be back with you all, friends. How are you doing? Are you well? You've had the lion, haven't you? <laughs> it's so good to see you. And I want to say, first of all, a really huge thank you to Dave and Karen for the invitation to be among you. And also, I want to say publicly to all of you, I'm so grateful for your leadership, Dave and Karen, not just in this church, but across the UK. You're resourcing what God's doing. Yes! Let's give them a huge clap. So exciting. And I love this theme for today, but I thought I'd start um, by telling you a little bit about one of your new members of staff called Phil. Have you met Phil yet? Phil and his wife, Emma. Um, and Phil is your new youth pastor here. Phil and Emma are two of the most natural, innovative evangelists I know. If you can get alongside them in any way and learn from them, I really encourage you to. And Dave very kindly said that I'm president of the Girls' Brigade England and Wales, and it's our 125th anniversary this year. We've been around for 125 years. And in England and Wales, we have 500 groups. It's uniformed youth organisations. 10,000 girls come to our groups. And one of our key values is discovering Jesus. Helping teenage girls around the UK, many of whom don't come from the Christian community, to find out about fun and friendship and all that kind of stuff, but to discover Jesus for themselves. And about a year ago, um, I gathered all the GB leaders together. These are women ranging from 18 up to 85. You're never too old to disciple young people. I hope you can hear me. Um, and I thought, who could we get to just really inspire these amazing, dedicated leaders um, in helping these girls discover Jesus in the 21st century? It's a different culture, a different environment. And I thought, I know he'll do that. Phil Timpson. So we had Phil for a day, and he just downloaded into these wonderful hearts, not just his passion for young people, but his passion for evangelism. So if you know any families with teenagers in your community who are not part of a church, invite them here, because God is going to carry on doing a mighty thing among you in your youth ministry. And I'm excited about that. I'm so excited about that. There um, was a factory just outside Chicago in a place called Hawthorne. And the factory owners thought, how do we increase productivity in our team? And so they thought they would get a, a load of scientists, men in the 1920s, women are scientists too, but in the 1920s it was a bunch of men with clipboards, and they visited the factory. And uh, they thought they'd do this. They, they arrived and they switched the lights on, turned the lights high, lighter, and they noticed that by making the lights brighter, productivity was increased. And then when these men with clipboards went home and the lights went down, productivity decreased. And so these factory owners very cleverly thought, ah, the way to improve productivity is make the lights brighter. Great. So they kept the lights up bright. And the men with clipboards went home. And two weeks later, even with the lights being bright, productivity levels went down. Because actually, they discovered that what made the difference wasn't how bright the lights were, but that people with clipboards were observing you working. And I don't know about you, but the moment somebody is looking over your shoulder, watching what you do, it has a direct impact, either for good or for ill, on what you do, doesn't it? How do you think God is looking at you? How do you think God sees you? Because the way we imagine God observing us 
He's not a guy with a clipboard. But the way we imagine God observing us directly impacts how we show up in our lives every day. How do you think God looks at you? Well, if you and I think that God is a guy with a clipboard who has got a list of things that today you've just got to kind of reach a bar. And he's just waiting, pen poised, for you to mess up, screw up, make a mistake, let him down. Then I guarantee that will affect how you operate. You're more likely to hide stuff away, aren't you? You're more likely to kind of have this division in your life, like the stuff that you let God see and the stuff that you don't. The stuff that you bring into your church community and family in the house and the stuff that you don't. But when we had that fresh revelation that Dave was praying for earlier, where we think, actually, God, even though I, am sti- I still struggle with stuff, actually, if I know that you look at me, Lord, with the eyes of love, with the eyes that say, daughter, you are wonderfully and fearfully made. Son, you are wonderfully and fearfully made. That will transform how we show up in our lives and what we live up to, won't it? Yes, that deserves a clout, doesn't it? It's so, so true. And, and that is what I love about this parable that we're going to dig into today. Just a little kind of spoiler alert. Luke uh, runs these three parables together, the parable of the sheep and the coin and the prodigal son. And you're going to be looking at the prodigal son next week, but I love it so much. I occasionally like kind of touch it a bit on this talk. So just to kind of warn you that I do a little bit of what's coming up for next week, because you can't really separate these three because they build up to something powerful. So come next week to hear where these stories land. But what I love about these stories, it's another way that Jesus does what he does best. He vibrantly and powerfully and disruptively gives us stories that show us how the Father sees us. That shows us how the Father sees us. This is God in action. God is the shepherd searching for the sheep. God is the woman searching for the coin. God is the father searching for the son. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn to Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read it to you. It's on your seat on this piece of paper as well. Here we go. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Amen. When we read scripture, it's really helpful, isn't it, just to kind of remind ourselves that this story is in amongst other things. And Luke very much presents his stories of what Jesus says and does in a way that kind of follows specific things he wants to really land home with us. And if you look at the last verse of chapter 14, I think there's a very interesting tell. 
Because Jesus in verse, chapter 14, verse 35, ends by saying this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then what does Luke tell us at the beginning of chapter 15? Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering close to hear Jesus. We're already told that actually the listening that those who are lost are doing to Jesus is really active. Like they've really honed in on what this guy is saying. They're really listening, daring to believe that maybe this penniless preacher from Nazareth who is doing these incredible things by what power we don't quite know yet, they're saying amongst themselves, that maybe there's something in what he says that could be for them. They don't quite get it yet, but they're daring to listen, to really hear. But Luke makes it really clear that as well as the lost, the sinners, the destitute, the tax collectors, There's also another group who are listening who also don't fully get it. It's the mutterers and the murmurers. (laughs) It's the religious leaders who don't quite get yet who the Father is and what it is that the Son has come to do. And I I like to kind of imagine sometimes a bit of a movie soundtrack behind some of these stories. And I just imagine like a little kind of the disciples doing a little bit of a drum roll because Jesus has just done a great bit of teaching on the cost of discipleship. It's pretty hardcore. It's pretty serious. Read chapter 14. It's pretty like, whoa, what? Like you make demands on me, Jesus? It's pretty tough stuff. And then he's sort of building up, building up, building up, and he lands it with the most outrageous story of love. I mean, it's utterly brilliant. It's utterly brilliant. And he chooses these three stories, a little bit like building up, like they're kind of trailers, trailers, trailers. Like, can you, do you get it? The, the shepherd looks at the sheep, do you get it? The woman looks at the coin, do you get it? The father looks at the son, do you get it? God's looking for you. Like, it's amazing stuff. It's amazing stuff. I absolutely love these stories. And what I'd like to do is pull out a few things from the good shepherd story, revealing to us the heart of the father. And I'm not sure if I'm right in saying this, but how I read this parable is I kind of imagine that Jesus is fully clocking the people in the crowd. And he's telling a story that utterly draws in those who are lost, destitute, sinners, rejected by everybody else. He's choosing a story that pulls them in, but he's saying the story to the leaders, to those who think, Actually, there are some people God likes and some people God doesn't like. There are some people that are allowed in and some people that aren't allowed in. And he's saying it to them in the hearing of the lost. And I think Jesus is gently chiding them, or maybe slightly more than gently chiding them, and saying to them, why would you be surprised that your heavenly Father goes after those who need him most So get ready for some three revelations of the heart of the Father. Here we go. Number one, when we read this parable, what we see revealed is that the heart of the Father is packed full of relentless love for all he has made. Relentless love. Now, it's an interesting story because the sheep in this story is probably bleating on the side of a cliff hanging off somewhere. You know, we don't really know much about the sheep. We don't know really where it is except the shepherd goes and finds it. But interestingly, there's no mention in the story that the sheep wants to be found. That is just taken as a given. And there wouldn't be a single person listening to the story going, what? A shepherd goes and does what? Finds his lost sheep. Why does it do that? And there'd be no mention of that. It's obvious. 
The context is obvious. If there is a sheep and if it is lost, that's bad news. It needs to be found. It needs to be found. We live in a culture that is driven by consumerism and secularism and individualism, which means that when we're gathered in the house and we're with those that love Jesus, sometimes this stuff makes more sense than when we're in the office, when we're out at the school gate and we want to start talking Jesus and we go, oh my goodness, I think people don't realize they're lost and am I allowed to say, I think Jesus wants to find you? Is that like a judgment on their life? Like, am I allowed to say that? Is that okay? Because we live in a culture that doesn't accept this. That says actually the way to be found is to, number one, find yourself. How does anyone do that? I'm 42 years old. Like, if it was left up to me to find myself, I'm in serious trouble. But it's kind of the stuff that you can hold and the stuff that you can put in your bank account and the status you can kind of clothe yourself in, that's what secures you. And the moment you or I challenge that or threaten that with how we live or what we say, We come up against a fairly strong resistance, don't we? Who are you to say that I'm lost? But for this story, the context says it's obvious. This is not a judgment on the sheep that the sheep is lost. It's just a correct reading of a harsh reality. If the shepherd does not find this sheep, this is bad news for the sheep. Everybody gets that. Everybody gets that. And we need to remember that, don't we? That actually being lost is serious. It's serious to be lost. It's serious to Jesus. It's serious to us. And it's really interesting as well that the relentless love of the Father is not just around an urgency to see those who are lost saved. It's also no question that the shepherd is actually going to find the sheep, that if you're lost, the one who can actually find you is looking for you. The shepherd doesn't sort of ring up on his first century version of a mobile phone and says, can I get the stewards to go and look for the sheep, please? Like the shepherd goes and looks for the sheep himself. This is the action of God. That is why we can, with loving certainty, gently say to our friends, God has found me and it has transformed my life. And I want to invite you to find that too. Not because of anything that we can do or have done, but because we know the shepherd who wants to find everyone. Oh yeah, amen. That's worth a clap, isn't it? I love this. I'm part of a church that does lots of cheers and claps. This is beautiful. The other thing that's interesting about this lost story is, I don't know about you, but if I say to you, I've lost my keys, I don't mean my keys are in my pocket, I just can't see them. I genuinely mean I don't know where they are. And if someone was to say to me, oh, Rachel, where did you last see your keys? I would be like, if I knew where I last put my keys, I would know where my keys are. Do you you ever do that? You're probably too gracious and nice in this church, aren't you? But I hate it when someone says, where did you last see it? My husband this week lost his wedding ring. And I did say to him, where did you last see it? I don't know. Why did you take it off? I don't know. Where have you been? I don't know. Eventually, he found it. I was going to force him to wear a Haribo ring on his finger if he didn't find it. But when we lose something, we have no idea where it is. That's what it means to be lost. This story is interesting because actually God knows where we all are all the time, doesn't he? He knows where we are. He knows how we're doing. 
The psalmist say there's nowhere we can flee from God's spirit. If we go down to the depths, he is there. Up to the heights, he is there. So it's interesting that Jesus chooses a story where the shepherd has to actually go and look for the sheep. The sheep doesn't come to the shepherd. And the second story is the woman has to actually turn her house inside out looking for the coin. The coin doesn't come to be found. Now, the third story is different. Dot, 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 next week. Hashtag next week. But for the first two, Jesus chooses stories that are all about the shepherd going finding. And yet Jesus knows full well that God knows everyone. No one's hidden from God. They're not actually lost to him in the way that things are lost to us. So what does Jesus want to convey to us in that? Well, here's a thought for you. I think what he wants to convey to us is that the whole point of this is not what we can do to find God. It's what God will do and has done in Jesus to find us. Now, this is, I think, what makes Christianity so radically crazy, incredible, audacious. You know, no one could make this stuff up. Because it's not about human beings trying to get themselves right with a divinity that's always slightly angry. This is about God himself surrendering himself, joining time and space, taking on flesh and blood, moving into the neighborhood and said, I want to find you. It's beautiful, beautiful. So it's relentless love. We are not meant to be separated from God. And God finding us is about bringing us home. Our natural state is not being lost. Our natural state is being found. Evangelism is walking each other home, isn't it? The second thought, and the second thing I think this reveals from the Father's heart is boundless joy. Boundless joy. God is prone to feeling joy. Joy comes easily to the Father's heart. He's not a killjoy. And what's so beautiful about this story is that this sheep is doing nothing to deserve any of this kind of applause. And it's probably covered in poo and thistles and all the rest of it. But the shepherd is rejoicing. The moment he finds a sheep, he sticks it on his shoulders and celebrates. God rejoices over you. Whether you remember the moment when you said yes to Jesus. And saying yes to Jesus is saying, head says true, heart says good, will says I'm in. Like whether you have an actual definitive moment of that or not, it would make it's just a steady journey of revelation, understanding. Regardless, heaven rejoices over you. And today it might be for some of you dear folks. Today is going to be the day where you says yes to Jesus. Your head says true. <laughs> I can't deny this. Your heart says good and your will says I'm in. And heaven is going to party over you today. But the other interesting thing about the joy bit is that this joy that the shepherd feels is not just a kind of, let's get the music loud, let's have a nice party, and then it's done. This is a joy that is deep within the gut of God. This is joy that has been hard won on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He leant right into that place of pain. He endured the shame and the suffering. Why? In Hebrews 2 verse 10 we're told, so that he could bring many sons and daughters to glory. 
The joy the Father feels has been won by the Son on the cross who has endured shame. And when we say, yes, Jesus, I surrender, I was lost, you found me, I'm yours, keep finding me, keep walking me home, help me to know who you want to meet me to walk home with, Jesus says, wow, it was worth it. I had you in mind. I had you in mind. I went for this. You are the joy in my crown. It's it's beautiful, isn't it? And the third thought, so relentless love, boundless joy. And this one is slightly odd. It's kind of not really Christian-y language. It's kind of a bit different. I chose that provocatively. I think what we see in the Father's heart that I really think is something for us at such a time as this, it's stubborn vulnerability. Stubborn vulnerability. And stubborn simply means dogged determination. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just doing that. I'm not going to look to the left or the right. I'm just, I'm going to get that sheep. <laughs> doesn't matter how many wolves come my way. doesn't matter how rough the terrain. doesn't matter how long it takes. There's a great worship song about kicking down the walls and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to get you <laughs> in the most wonderful way. <laughs> dogged determination. And stubborn vulnerability, because vulnerability is about being exposed to the possibility of being rejected, being hurt. And God the Father in this story, the shepherd is saying, I've got doggy to I'm, I'm coming after you. You need me. You need me. I'm going to come find you. And I'm going to put myself in harm's way. I mean, Jesus does this regularly. He puts himself in harm's way. And ultimately ending in the cross. He puts himself in harm's way. He takes the full force of sin. He absorbs absorbs it in his body. He puts himself in harm's way so that we can be found. And I really think if there's one kind of characteristic, I think there's many characteristics we want to take, but I think this one is specifically for our time. I think I, I find as a youth worker that I think beginning to have a conversation with young people about Jesus, I find incredibly easy. We live in a culture that's incredibly post-Christian. Young people don't often know about Jesus. And then when they begin to hear about God, and they begin to hear about Jesus, I often find we, we, we hit a wall. And the wall is this. I don't know if God wants to find me. I don't know if I'm good enough for God. I don't know if I can be mended and sorted out. And, and I don't know if your God can really help me with that. And it's the stubborn determination and vulnerability of his people that say, we'll keep having these conversations. I'll keep introducing you to Jesus. I'll keep trying in my own way to show you how beautiful and loving and kind and wonderful he is. And I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I was thinking um, just about a little story in Scripture, the, the You probably know it really well, the story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And I was just reflecting on it, because it's a story of Jesus raising someone from the dead, but I think it's an interesting story as well of of Jesus bringing someone to life, of salvation. Because Jesus knows that Lazarus is dead, and he goes to the tomb, and before Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, before Jesus does what only he can do, which is bring, bring freedom from death, bring someone to life, bring salvation, before he does that, what does he get people around him to do? What does he ask the disciples to do? Roll away the stone. I sometimes think that talking Jesus is about rolling away the stone. It's about saying, no, no, here's a moment for you to see 
in Jesus everything that you're looking for. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. And then what does he ask his disciples to do? Take off the death clothes. There's somebody in my community who met Jesus a long time ago. And, and because of lots of issues in her life and very difficult, painful things, she knows Jesus. Jesus has found her. Nothing will take her out of God's hands. Nothing will. He's got her. But she sometimes needs to be reminded by us to take off the death clothes, to take off the rags that make her feel that she's back to where she was before because Jesus has brought her to life. He's called her out of the grave. He said, "Come." only Jesus can do that. We don't do that, do we? We don't save people. We don't call them out of the grave. Jesus does that. But he invites us to work with him and say, now that you're free, you're free indeed. Keep taking off those death clothes. So I think this, this parable presents us with two things, really. It's the profound urgency of the mission that people who are lost need to be found. And we were those people once. We know what it is to be lost, and we have been found by the king of the universe, we have a future and a hope and a security and a destiny. The urgency, but coupled with profound compassion, deep love, being prepared to walk the journey, being prepared to be stubbornly vulnerable. I'm not about talking about sitting in a kind of an underpass where you might be mugged. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about showing up in people's lives and letting them see the difference that Jesus makes. And I'm stood here with my bright red trousers on and my you know, stories of this and that, and I look pretty confident. Actually, I find this tough. I find this difficult. But do you know what I often am reminded of? I often think, I know the difference that Jesus makes in my life every day when we were going through infertility treatment, all the different things I've been through in my life. I know the difference that Jesus has made walking with me, empowering me by his spirit. And, and if I did not know Jesus, I would want someone in my life who knows him to show up in my life and tell me about him. If I didn't know Jesus, I'd want someone who cares about me, who loves him, to be prepared to, for me to reject them, for me to call them an idiot, so that I get to hear about him. At the beginning, we watched the beautiful, wasn't it a beautiful film of the two men on the cliff? Did you recognize where that was? Where that was shot? This, where the story took place, that beautiful sea vision. It's actually at Beachy Head in Eastbourne. And Beachy Head in Eastbourne is this, is this area of outstanding natural beauty. Um, but it's also a place where people from around the world will go to jump off and commit suicide. In fact, it happens so much that the Samaritans have set up a telephone line there and local Christians got together and, and created a plaque at the point where people jump that says, it's a psalm that says, mightier than the stirring waters, the Lord on high is mighty. God is bigger than all your problems because people go there to jump. And um, that's what the man was doing, wasn't he? <laughs> He'd gone there to jump, to end it all. And one conversation with one person meant that he walked away from the point of death into life. Beautiful. Now, years ago, when I was training as a youth worker, I was working in, um, in a, hostel, a youth hostel in, the, in, in that area. 
And one of the girls that I was a key, I was a youth worker, a key worker for, she was in her late teens. And one night she just overdosed on a mixture of Jack Daniels and pills. And she just wanted to end it all. And, and she ended up in A&E and had a few days in A&E getting her stomach pumped and being assessed. And, and then it was decided she, she could come home. So as her key worker, I was only about 21 years old. I went and picked her up from the hospital. And she sat in the car next to me. And I just thought to myself, I can take you back to the hostel, but I think we'll be back here again. Because actually nothing has changed in your life. You still feel the utter despair and pain. You've been abused and misused by people in your life. This is not a judgment on her. But nothing's changed. And I'd love that to change. I'd love you to know Jesus. I'd love you to know that your life has a purpose, that you're not a mistake, that whatever's been said over you and to you, from this moment on, you could know one who would never, ever leave you. And so I said to her, oh, it's a really nice day. Should we go up to Beachy Head? <laughs> and she looked at me like, ah, I'm just trying to commit suicide. Why are we going to Beachy Head? And I was like, oh, no, I hadn't thought of that. But anyway, we went up to Beachy Head. We didn't obviously go to the place where people jump. We went to a different part, very close to where the film was shot here, actually. And we sat a bit further from the back, because I was a responsible youth worker. And we sat on the grass. It was a beautiful day. And we began to chat. And I was 21. I'm 42. I'm not really any better at it now. And I didn't know what to say, but I just said things like, I know that you're precious and I know that you're hurting. I know there's nothing I can say that can make this better. And I know that you, you can walk away from me. You haven't got to sit and listen to this. But it might be in this moment, you want to hear about somebody who's transformed my life. And you, if you want to hear about that, I'm, you know, I'm up for that. And, and she lit up a cigarette, and we sat there, and we began to chat, and we began to chat, and we began to chat. And actually, eventually, it ended with us both standing, shouting, jumping, I am alive! I am alive! Just shouting over all the stuff in her life. Death, you've not got hold of me. I am alive. I am alive. It was amazing. It was amazing. I took her back to the hostel. She has had many years of counselling and support because of huge amounts of stuff in her life. But I watched that film and thought, do you know what the most precious thing according to the mission of God is that sometimes God puts someone in our life who is heading towards death and despair and Jesus invites us to walk with them into life. Wow. 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 And the thing about that film is he had no idea that's what he did. He had no idea that that little conversation on the beach opened up for this wonderful man a whole series of events that led him to Jesus. There's a verse in Ezekiel 47 that says, where the river flows, there is life. You and I have the spirit of Jesus at work in our lives. Whether you work in a business or an organization where you are able to name drop Jesus freely or not, on one level is irrelevant. You have the power of the Spirit of Jesus at work in your life. And as you allow God to see you as fearfully and wonderfully made, and that changes how you show up in your life, and that changes how you lead, and that means you are alert to opportunities and moments where maybe in this moment I could share something, I could invite somebody to something, I could bring a Bible to work and say, if you want to borrow that, that's yours. Suddenly, imagine the knock-on of that. How beautiful. God, that you would increase our urgency for the lost, that you would help us to see those around us in the way that you see them, and that you would increase our love for those who you went to the cross for. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.